There are fewer than 30 men in the world qualified to drive Formula One. A mere half dozen, perhaps, to win. At this moment, I'm inclined to think you're not one of them. Welcome to F1Weekly.com. My name is Clark Rogers. I'm the host of the program. I'll be joined by Nasser Hamid, my co-host. This is podcast number 1014, October 16th, 2023, Nasser. Thank you, sir. I say heat is on Daddy's little Jim Clark. Lawman laps Bernie. And ready F1, no power. We shall explain, gladly. Back to you, Chief. Thank you, Nasser. On today's program, will Lawrence Stroll sell Aston Martin just because his son is not capable to be world champion in Formula One? When did this track limits problem begin? Because it's tomfoolery from now on. And Nasser returns from the big road Atlanta trip with a goodie bag. And this week's interview, this is a really important interview, ladies and gentlemen. It's so historical. There are so many good facts about fantastic <sighs> upgrades to Formula One in the 70s. You're going to love it. Of course, I'm talking about Francois Castaigne. And this was recorded in 2006, first aired on podcast 114. And, of course, just a reminder, everybody, we need your contributions to keep this program on the air. Just click on the Support F1 Weekly tab. You know you'll want to. Nas, welcome to the studio. How are you? I'm doing very good, sir. I had a peachy time at Road Atlanta. It is a very nice track. Folks are friendly, and we were able to get an audience with their driver. We have been trying for a long time one of only four drivers to win the Indy 500 four times. Man is always dancing with the stars, one and only Elio Castroneves. And on Saturday he won the race, the uh, Petit Le Mans, so that's very good. And we will have this conversation on next week's podcast. And you remember, I'm sure you remember very well how it worked out when we first tried to have a chat with him at Sears Point many moons ago. Oh, of course, I remember. That was the the beginning of our foray into motorsports journalism in 2006, and it was exciting. And, of course, there are always many letdowns. Yes. So on Thursday, I had a great two-hour conversation in the media room with Bob Varsha, the voice of Formula One in the United States in the halcyon days of ESPN and Speed Vision. Uh, he is based in Atlanta, and he is still doing commentary work for Formula E these days. And, you know, he was kind enough. Uh, Media Center is on the second floor. He was in the VIP uh, enclosure on um, third floor, so he said he'd come down. I thought it was going to be like a 15, 20-minute, you know, hello, hi, how are you kind of deal. But we had a great conversation for over two hours. 
He told me he also leads an F1 cruise on a company called Windward Cruises, I believe is the name, normally from Barcelona to Monte Carlo. And for the season finale, he will be host of a cruise from Dubai to Abu Dhabi. Interesting. Also met other media people like Ralph Shaheen of Speedsport. He is originally from Sacramento and we have known each other for a long time. Also had a nice chat with Paul Fenner. He is publisher of Racer Magazine from Southern California. And you know all these gentlemen and ladies um, in the media room and in the racing industry, they go back long 30, 40 years. Some were racing drivers, some were working for some other organization. Uh, then they changed their uh, profession. And I met this gentleman, Matt Yoakum. He is with NBC Sports and Bob Washer introduced me to him. And he turns out to be a huge Formula One fan. And he's telling me and Bob, he said that uh, my wife is always asking me, what are you doing watching YouTube all day long? And he says, man, I just love watch racing on YouTube, Formula One. And then he says, what I really enjoy is watching interviews with different drivers. And Bob Varsha said to him, hey, this guy has a lot of interviews on his podcast. So I gave him my card. And, you know, in the conversation, he brought up the name of Francois Severe. So I told him our last podcast has an interview with his brother-in-law, Jean-Pierre Bertois. So this was a very good trip uh, in terms of uh, meeting people and introducing the wonderful world and crazy world of F1 Weekly to some fine gents. And this was the really highlight for me. And we also ran into this gentleman. I think it was the same weekend as our first foray with uh, Gastro Navas. So on Friday, I ran into a tall bearded gentleman. And I said to him, you must be Eddie Cheever. And just like Dr. Galakovic from the Budweiser commercial, he said, yes, I am. He is now based in Indianapolis. He used to live in Florida. And he said he will be happy to help us with the phone interview and gave me his contact info. So plan is now to make this happen soon. So I have to say the overall uh, trip to Road Atlanta was very, very successful. It's um, basically, um, you know, I have friends who live in the Alpharetta area. Uh, it's a seven hour drive from here and another one hour drive. The track is located in a town called Brazelton. Uh, it's very easy to access there. It's very nice and the parking was just outside the track and they had shuttle service so that helps uh, for old geezers like you and i have you ever been to road atlanta senor no sir never been to road atlanta i wish i had when i was young yeah and they also have uh, motorcycle races there so that's interesting okay next we move on to formula one and men under pressure land stroll hints and allegation are plenty he will retire, Daddy will sell the team to Aramco. Apparently, Cognizant is dropping their sponsorship. Jacques Villeneuve has gone on record saying Lance would take a helicopter ride from his private Idaho to Karting Track, even though it was located at a 15-minute walk from his palatial casa. Isn't that beautiful? Let's take a look at how he got to this racing point. I first heard about Lance when he was announced as a Ferrari junior before he was a teenager. Right away I knew there was something here. Mega talent waiting to be the next Michael Schumacher or there was more to the story. So I called a professional Canadian racing driver I've known for many years and who was immensely successful in karting. 
and also won the Formula BMW Championship many moons ago. And I asked him about Little Lance. And his response was, he is quick, but there is a lot of hype around him. And it was then I found out his Papito had a Ferrari dealership in Montreal. So I put two and two together and decided, let the performance on the track speak for itself. And oh, Canada, I was not disappointed. Las Vegas 2012, Scusa Super Nationals. Same day as the inaugural U.S. Grand Prix in Austin, Texas. A day that will live in infamy. In the final event, likes of George Russell, Charles Leclerc and one Max Verstappen, they all had to watch as Lance Stroll tracked down George Russell lap after lap to take a very impressive win. Now, some have suggested the Ferrari Winter Series, which took place in Florida, I think it took place one year or two years, that it was paid for by Lawrence Stroll. Once again, his Bambino emerged as a champion in a field which also included Max Verstappen. So, so far, things looking good for uh, Lance. The winning beat continued for Lance in 2014, winning the Italian Formula 4 Championship. In 2015, he won the New Zealand-based Toyota Racing Series. The same season, he was very erratic, but quick in his rookie season of European F3 Championship. In fact, he was disqualified from remaining races at Monza after a heavy crash. It was a vicious crash if anybody wants to check out uh, on YouTube. In 2016, Lance won the European F3 Championship. Again, there were hints and allegations that Papa had bought the Prima team and paid for his teammates' drive based on them playing second banana to his cherry son. Like American Express, being part of the Lucky Sperm Club, membership has privileges. This included 20-day private testing in a Mercedes F1 car, of course a couple of year older car, as per regulations, at tracks around the world. Next, we move to Lance's F1 debut, which came in the 2017 Australian Grand Prix with Williams. His first podium from third place finish came in the streets of Baku at the young age of 18. So this guy has been in Formula 1 to, since 2017. And here we are today. Against a 42-year-old driver, the 24-year-old Lance has scored 47 points against 183 for Alonso. Absolutely mind-blowing. Daddy's little Jim Clark has been turned into Jimmy Doolittle with no firepower, thanks to machismo. Overall, I think Daddy's dream to see Lance win the World Championship is fading and will always fade as long as he has a real racing talent as his teammate. In a perfect world and powered by Funds Unlimited, I can see Lance take the title if Aston Martin can provide him an all-conquering package like Red Bull today and Mercedes in days of yore. And Daddy pays for number two to play number two. In the meantime, keep driving. Mr. Rogers, I know you prefer to see Lance at Flushing Meadows than Formula One. Do you see any hope for him in Formula One? I don't. And what blows my mind is somebody as intelligent as Lawrence Stroll with all the business savvy in the world. His brain was full of fog thinking that Lance... I mean, he was probably convinced by some people close to him that Lance could go all the way 
you know, I mean, a lot of fathers do this. It's a big mistake, but hey, at least he knows now. And maybe and the, the most important thing is, what does Lance want to do with his life? I mean, you know, life is more than just news, weather, and sports. You know, one interesting you say the last part, I was reading uh, about him and one of the team owners was quoted as saying in his junior day that Papa and Lance came to the team, you know, as parents do to check out the team. And his comment was that he had never seen a father so interested in, uh, in putting together a package for the son. But at the same time, the guy said, I had never seen a kid who was so disinterested in what uh, daddy was trying to do. But the thing is, you know, he's quick. He's been on pole. He's just had a few po- podiums. And of course, they have this 107% rule. So he has never been outside that range. He is not paying the price of what happens like Max and Rubinho when you get teamed up with a super uber talent. But, uh, you know, it is a very good seat, at least for now. And I think he should really move away and give it to a very talented kid. He should really get into driver management. He has all the money in the world to throw a few bucks on some young talent. And if they click, he can make, not that he needs another million, but he can be very successful. Just like Eddie Irvine has become extremely successful in real estate in Florida, Miami especially. So there is hope for him. But I think he's holding up a very good seat at this time. Yes. But the one thing that really blows my mind is I'm sure Lawrence Stroll believed in hiring Fernando Alonso that Lance was going to be okay and will be able to compete with Fernando when now we know the reality of the whole situation. Yeah, he probably thought he could learn from him, and Lawrence was right. The only thing Lance has learned is that I can't beat Nando. And if you cannot beat a 42-year-old guy... I mean, then, you know, it's a pretty sad scene. Okay, sir, now we move on to Lawman Laps Bernie. Some years ago, Bernie Ecclestone paid a hefty fine and settlement to avoid jail time in Germany over a bribery scandal involving his crony at Landesbank. The shares in, their shares in Formula One were sold at a discount. History has repeated itself. Bernie Ecclestone has avoided jail time again and given... 17 months suspended prison sentence after pleading guilty to fraud. Ecclestone has pleaded guilty to fraud over a failure to declare 400 million pounds held in a trust in Singapore to the UK government and apparently he was asked some years ago when he was telling them I only have one trust I think it's in you know the usual Cayman Islands or whatever and he said no I don't have anything else so here here we are. He will pay the UK's IRS 652.6 million pounds. That is about 793 million US dollars. What say you? That, that's a lot of money. I, I, lot, I, lot, lots of zeros too, huh? That's a lot of money there. And I just hope he doesn't have to sell. What's his daughter's name? I forgot. There are three Petra and something. One of them is Petra. Well, I hope those young ladies don't have to suffer. Oh, I feel sorry for them. You know, some, a few years ago, a property was sold in Beverly Hills, which at that time was the highest price real estate in the U.S. of A for a house. And the property was owned by his two of his daughters. Oprah Winfrey lives there. Good for her. Okay, now ZZ Top back on top, at least in his own mind. 
William Story of Rich Energy and Haas F1 sponsorship fame is back in the news. This time he is trying to take over a football club in England for 50 million pounds. Mr. Story may be a sharp dressed man, but I sure would like to know where the money comes from. Mr. Rogers, you are a man of beverages from Pinot Noir to Perrier. Have you ever seen a can of rich energy? I think they are as rare as Trabant in a Beverly Hills driveway. I have to admit, I have never seen a can of rich energy or, or even a fake can of rich energy. So, I don't know. You know, when people still dress like ZZ Top in 2023, I have concerns. Yeah, I saw him a few years ago in the paddock at uh, Austin. He was hanging around with Claire Williams, who sure knows a winner. And the guy looks totally so out of place. But, you know, to each his own. Okay, sir, here is my favorite item. PC train has arrived at the Vegas platform. You will like this. There will be no paddock at the Vegas Grand Prix. Formula One has decided not to use this term due to sensitive history attached to the name in this in the region. When I read this part, I thought something happened 100, 200 years ago. Well, it's sad, but this goes back to mass killing in 2017 by a man named Stephen Paddock at a festival on the Las Vegas trip. With all due respect to people who lost their lives, this move, I think, is Formula One just working over time to look saintly in the Sin City. Would you like to slot in your expert opinion on this? It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. I mean, it's insulting the intelligence of people in Las Vegas. I mean, these people know that there's a paddock at every horse race in America. It's a word that means something, and it's also the last name of this particular idiot. But to put the two together is just ludicrous. I think that's really, once again, we're off into the bizarre world. Uh-oh, hang on. I feel... Track limits coming. There you go. Okay. Pirelli, uno, dos, tres. Contract extended. Cinturatos will be circulating in Formula 1 till the end of the 2027 season after agreeing to a three-year extension with Formula 1. Pirelli's history with Formula 1 goes all the way back to the inaugural 1950 season. Today, they are owned by a Chinese company, China National Chemical Corporation. Corporate headquarters are in Milan, Italy, and their U.S. operations are based in Rome, Georgia. So they are keeping the Italian theme alive. Their other claim to fame is the Heavenly Bodies calendars, which I'm sure, Mr. Rogers, you have seen once or twice in your lifetime. In my young lifetime, now my cardiovascular system can't handle it. Yeah, I have only seen it one time, and the reason it happened is one of my co-workers in the banking industry, he used to work at Pirelli in San Jose, California, and I mentioned um, if he has ever seen Pirelli calendars, and he had a big smile. He said, yeah, man, I keep it away from my wife, but I can bring one and show it to you. I mean, these are just uh, incredible uh, calendars, that's for sure. Okay, I'm surprised Michelin being French does not do something like that. They do. Every page is bibondum in the nude. Oh boy, that's so exciting. Okay, now we go to Andretti F1 No Power. Their arrangement with Renault slash Alpine for engine supply is no longer valid. Speaking to motorsport.com, 
Alpine interim team principal who used to be with Peugeot, Monsieur Bruno Fama, said the situation changed earlier this year when its pre-arrangement lapsed. He said, and I quote, We had a pre-contract with Andretti, which has expired because they were supposed to be granted an F1 entry before a given date. It means right now, if we want to do something with Andretti, we need to negotiate a full contract, a formal contract. So right now, we have absolutely no contract with Andretti. End quote. Let's hope Michael gets the seal of approval from Formula One management and then we can plug in power. You know, not too long ago, GM and Honda signed an extensive long-term agreement uh, on developing EVs. Hopefully, they can work together on F1 project also. Perhaps Honda can supply GP2 engines to Michael's team in F1, badged as powered by Cadillac Eldorado. In my humble opinion, Andretti F1 should be powered by Ferrari or Alfa Romeo. Mario Andretti's first F1 victory uh, came uh, in a Ferrari, Kyalami, South Africa, 71, and his final full-season contract in F1 was with Alfa Romeo, and I think it will be a nice Paisan touch. But for sure, they're not going to stay without power because engine manufacturers are required to supply more than one team. So which way you think they will go or which way you would like to see them go? Well, to be honest with you, Ferrari, I believe, has already stepped up to the plate and uh, said that they're welcome to a Ferrari motor and, of course, the 50-gallon drum of marinara sauce. That's complimentary. Oh, that's very good. Next, going, going, soon to be gone. This might be of interest to you, sir. Lewis Hamilton's Mercedes F1 car will be auctioned off on the afternoon of Friday, November 17, in Las Vegas. R.M. Sotheby's expects the vehicle to sell for between 10 and 15 million dollars. Now, this is the car in which Hamilton took his first Mercedes win at the 2013 Hungarian Grand Prix. The most expensive F1 car, 29.6 million paid, was paid for in 2013 for Fangio's 1954 Mercedes W196. Any interested in bidding for this LCH Benz Mobile, sir? No, of course not, because I am of the poor people of Paris category. But I did notice, because of this auction, that Verstappen made an interesting statement, said that he really wants to buy Michael Schumacher's F-2004. So I think that means that Verstappen really is not interested in going to auctions for a Mercedes, but he could afford it. But no, this is very interesting stuff. This could be the car that was rented by Lawrence Stroll. Yeah, very possible. But, you know, something like this. This is Lewis's first win with Mercedes. 10, 20 years down the road, this will have a very, very high value. No question because of the... It's like Michael's first Ferrari win, Senna's first win with Lotus. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying, and that's why I'm sort of surprised that the car is not in Lewis Hamilton's garage. Yeah, I'm also surprised. I'm also surprised. And actually, you said, funny you said that it was mentioned in the news release that this is one of the few Mercedes F1 cars, modern era, that is not owned by Lewis, Toto Wolf, or the Mercedes team. So uh, we'll see how it works out. Yeah, it's interesting how that car got 
left behind from the collections. And, huh, that's fascinating. I wonder what's going to happen to the W13 in the future, Nasser. Mm, I think UJED may may buy all of those. You know, <laughs> that is very funny. And that's beginning to make me thirsty, Nasser. So why don't we take a quick break and we'll be back with a fantastic interview and more fantastic facts and figures of Formula One. So stay tuned and we'll be back after these brief messages. Hi, this is Mika Hatkinen, double Formula One world champion. All the best for the readers, F1 Weekly. Welcome back to F1Weekly.com. Clark Rogers here, your host. And now, as we spin the globe and go around the world with Motorsports Mondial and the king, the Swami himself, Nasser Hamid. Thank you, sir. As you mentioned at the top of the show, we will uh, feature uh, a conversation we had with Mr. Francois Castain, who not too long ago passed away. Uh, he has a tremendous history in motor racing. He um, he was at Dijon Prenois, 1979, and we talk about that. And he was head of the technical department. Actually, he was one of the two people who... Uh, designed that turbo engine and then he came to the u.s when renault bought american motors and he was involved with chrysler because then chrysler had bought american motors and he was the one who spearheaded the lamborghini f1 project uh, which lamborghini at that time was owned by chrysler so there's a lot of history and at one time he was ceo of excite batteries and you know what was so interesting when you and i met him uh, that was the first time we ever met him and he gave us a lot of inside information, which I was very surprised that somebody would do that. Uh, and remember, he invited us to his um, truck to come and sit down with him? Yes, I, I do remember. Uh, he was such a nice guy, and I remember he was racing a vintage Chevron. Exactly. Yeah, super nice guy, invited us into his uh, motorhome. It was very sweet. I almost thought we were about to have a glass of wine and some fromage. There you go. So hopefully our folks, uh, members of F1 Weekly Familia, will enjoy this conversation from days gone by. Uh, let's talk about this next interview. Fantastic historical representative of Formula One in terms of engineering. Absolutely. And uh, this gentleman is Francois Castain. A lot of people may not know his name, but people in motor racing, especially on the technical side, have a lot of respect for him. Clark, as you know, passion for motor racing in France is as strong and deep as in Italy and England. France is the country that hosted the very first Grand Prix in 1906 and gave the word Grand Prix to the world, which probably you can pronounce better than I can. Grand Prix. Merci. It is home to some of the legendary names in automobile industry and motor racing. Bugatti, Delage, and I'll let you say the third name we have here. Bonheur. Wonderful. In racing, we have names like Alpine, Matra, Mécanique, Aviation, Traction, and Renault, who won that very first Grand Prix 100 years ago. Uh, this interview is with François Castain, who played a, an incredible part in turbocharging Formula One, no pun intended. It was a great pleasure to have a conversation with a man who spearheaded Renault's turbo drive into Formula One and who was at Dijon in 1979 to witness that historic first win for a turbo-powered car with Jean-Pierre Jabouille at the wheel. And Clark, which was very interesting for me, I asked him uh, how he remembered the 
the more famous thing that was happening behind Jabouille, the tour yeah, the between uh, Gilles Villeneuve, Gilles Villeneuve and, and René Arnoux, who was also in a Renault. And it was, I, I invite in, uh, listeners to listen how he answered this thing, what they thought was happening when they heard all that uproar. So it was a fabulous, I really enjoyed talking to Mr. Castain very much. Uh, he is originally from the French port city of Marseille. He was hired by Gordini in 1968 after he did some research work for them as a student. His first assignment was to work on engines for the 1968 Le Mans 24-hour race. He was later sent by Renault to the United States as part of American Motors, you know, which were owned by Renault at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was part of the senior technical management team, and he now resides in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Uh, this interview is a fascinating behind-the-scene look into the world of Formula One racing. My favorite part is when he's describing the envy of English teams at the Renault and Ferrari catering trucks as both these teams would park together as they were the only non-English teams and members of the English team would come over trying to get some mucha meal from them. It was pretty funny stuff. Yeah, exactly. I would like to take this opportunity uh, to thank Mr. Castain for inviting us to his motorhome at Laguna Seca and sharing his experiences with us. And I was really thrilled and honored uh, to be on this interview because having been, obviously, as everybody knows who listens to the podcast, I am a Renault fan. I'm half French. I've grew up in France, and uh, having driven Renaults, I've been invited by Renault to see some of their Formula One cars in their private uh, atelier, as they call it, and having seen some of these cars up front, and then get to speak to the gentleman who developed uh, the turbo-powered Formula One cars, and him being at my favorite all-time race, Dijon 79, you guys hear me on this podcast all the time, he's off, he's off, he's back again, it's incredible! That's my Murray Walker impression of Dijon 1979. So fantastic. Yeah, this this is the man who designed the first turbo engine. And I just really enjoyed talking to him. Me too. Thank you. You know, I have known of your name for many, many years. And um, we want to ask you about your early days with Gordini. Please. Oh. As I was growing up, I was passionate about, growingly passionate about motorsport. I was working on my moped and then my motorcycle. And as I was getting into college, I was committed to find a job in the car in, in motorsport someplace. At the times, very few options existed. The only two real companies were on one side, the old Gordini automobiles, and the other side, the new Matra, as were coming out. And I was lucky that for my last year of mechanical engineering degree, I was, I was looking for um, a thesis to do. And my professor of motor at... Uh, my last year was the one that was offering this type of um, deal. And I remember the first day in, um, in school, I rushed like a quarter to, I, to talk to the professor and said, really, you, you must have a good one for me. He said, well, come back tomorrow, we'll have one. It's long story short, I ended up being asked with two colleagues to design a complete car for Le Mans as a thesis for Amédée Gordini. That's why I got to know him. At the end of the year, we went to see him with a mock-up of the car, the model for the wind tunnel. And then all the design of the, of the car, he, he has given us his new V8 3-liter and then the Z, ZF. And I remember Ginetta suspension for whatever reason. So that's where we designed the car around. And then I got my degree, and the next morning I knocked-knocked the door of Day, And I knew he was impressed because when we presented, the, he was looking at me all the time. So... I said, I want to work for you. And he said, okay, come come and start working for me. So that was the beginning. 
And the uh, summer of 68 was a little a trouble time in France because of the riots. And Le Mans has been pushed to September or October, I don't remember. So during the, my first job was to run um, V8 engine for Alpine on the dyno to test them for Le Mans. And then uh, Gordini was started to realize that the new v, DFV has come along and Matra engine was coming along. And their engine was still two valves, no fuel injection. So he asked me to help them with fuel injection. So I went to Germany uh, to learn from Kugel Fischer and then to Lucas in the, in the UK. And I built a, a one-liter four-cylinder engine, Kugel Fischer engine, that ended up being raced the following year at Le Mans with Volek and uh, Keeley. It worked very well. And then I, they left for the, the military service, uh, as all the French do. And then when I came back, I was scared to death that I would not be accepted back. But in between, Gordini has been bought out by Renault, became Renault Gordini. It was a new sense that Renault was going to do something more serious because the end of the 60s was not good for Gordini Alpine, not in rally, but in, um, in, on track. It was, they were never really prepared, never really competitive, no, no teamwork between the engine and the, and the chassis people. So for two years we did um, a number of things. From I, I continued to do fuel inject in the rally engines and things like that. And, Learn my, we, we did an engine that never was used, a um, PRV racing engine that was like a 300 horsepower engine that nobody ever saw. And then we were dying to, to, to hear from Renault what was the big thing they wanted to do us, for us to do. Before you got into racing in your college and high school days, who were your racing heroes? What developed your passion for motor racing? Well, my first experience with motor racing is, must have been 10 years old. And I went to the Grand Prix of Marseille around a horse track called Parc Borelli, and Fangio was there. And I remember seeing him because it was casual in those days. But I was 10 years old. I don't, thought, I don't think that... I was, early on, I was interested in motorcycles. I was fascinated by the, all the new bikes coming from Japan and the, the new riding. You know, they were all outside of the bike, which was new back then. The old Manx, um, Norton, and and then from there, in, in I was born in Marseille, and it, there was there was no track there until Le Castellet was built. So what you what everybody was doing was go see hill climbs, or Coupe des Alpes. So I saw Abart with Ortner in those days, and um, uh, Jean Roland with the Alpha 33 and GTA. Um, so we would spend the nights waiting for them to go by, you know. And I, in those days, I thought that the GTA was a big car going up the hill. But in fact, when you see them now, they're teeny cars. But, but I was really fascinated by, the, you know, Porsche, RSK, and other um, interesting times. And I don't remember whether or not I was passionate about one. I was more interested in the technical side than, than the drivers themselves. Uh, I knew a few... Uh, there was two, two, two brothers who were doing well. They were in the same high school as me, Gamay, Jean-Claude Gamay. And they were, and, uh, they were getting factory cars from Alpha in those days. When I was in, um, uh, at the time, Beltoise was uh, the, the, the rising star, Pescarolo. And then the thing I, I um, but I was really passionate about, I was reading a lot of, about Keith Duckworth and 
you know, more the technical side I was passionate about. There was a time with Matra, I was starting to, you know, partner, initially partner with Tyrell to, and Jackie Stewart and to do the, the won the first championship. So I didn't, the drivers, I got to know them in the, in the first three years of 70 and 71, as we were waiting for the big decision to build uh, the new V6 that will become what it's become. I was, they asked me to help set up the new Formula Renault, so I define and release, if you wish, using a Renault engine and a transmission from the Renault 12 Gordini, a package that was used for the new Renault, Formula Renault. And for two years, I followed through, you know, almost every race to help Jacques Ferré at the time, a former rallyman, who was in charge of all the Coupe, Renault Gordini, and Formula Renault. And all the drivers there were interesting people. They were Lafitte, some that didn't go far. Later on, Tambe. Um. How did you know uh, François Sauvé? Because he was married to the sister of Jean-Pierre Bartois. Yeah. I met him once or two, but he, 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 was, he was not in... He was spending most of his time in the UK with TL and never got to know him very well. Um, and, and he died early, so he... And what's in Glen? Johnny Servos Gavin, who just passed away recently, did you know him? Johnny Servos Gavin? I, I met him a couple of times. And the, at Alpine, I've met some of the drivers, like uh, in 69, in in, in, uh, I met some of the um, people like Grand Cire and Jean Guichet, and um, uh, our drivers were De Paillet, Jabouille. Jean-Claude André. André. He was mostly a rally guy. Yeah, and I was, Alpine at the time was very jealous of uh, keeping the rally business for themselves. So they were reluctant to even to test our engines. Some of our engines we did were better than theirs, so they would not take them. Because they were rivalry and bad, blood, bad memories of the collaboration with Gordini and both ways. So all that changed progressively when the new V6 was done and so on. No, you had a lot of success with Renault, both at Le Mans and uh, in Formula One. Right. Uh, there is one very important race that we always talk about in Formula One, but Dijon Prenois, 1979. Were you at that race? Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that is an incredible. That was first turbo win, and that's totally eclipsed by what happened for second place. Yeah, Villeneuve and Arnoux. Tell us about that race and what that victory meant for you as your contribution to Renault. Was it was a real milestone in the sense that um, the um, you know, we convinced Renault and our management reluctantly from on their side in um, 1975 that we, th- we had this perception that we could do a 1-5 turbo that we could, could be raced against the V8 and the V12 and 3-liter. And all the experts, Keith Duckworth, the head of Porsche, the BMW engine, Ferrari, said, these people are crazy. They don't know what they're doing. And... So, but we, we, Elf, who was interested in moving along and was one of the visionary in communication, thought that if I were to work, they would get a lot of visibility for it. So they paid for two V6 to be converted to, uh, at the time we were doing the uh, endurance championship with a two-liter turbo against Alpha and Porsche. We were not doing perfectly because we, the team were not yet together and we won the first race in Mugello and then the last race at Le Mans and, and nothing in between. But anyway, so progressively during 75, we built two, we, as we were racing in Formula 2 
and then in um, endurance racing around the world, we built two, these two engines, one with a different stroke from the other. And the first time we test them in a prototype, it was we we knew that we were it was going to work. It was uh, it was he has a lot of lag, but it was already doing four, 540 horsepower. Who designed the engine? Bernard Dudo, or you were involved in the design of the engine also? The V6 was done by us, by me and, and Jean-Pierre Boudy. Dudo was not with us yet. Dudo was still in, in, um, at Alpine, and he came uh, to turbocharge the engine. Yeah, exactly. But it was four of us who did the engine. Jean-Pierre, myself, uh, a chief designer called Alba, uh, Albaria, an Italian. And then that was it. And then... Um, we did we after them on we had each of our big board and split the work and did it in the, in during the year of seventy two and then right away when we bent dyno the engine it was two ninety five something like that and it was as powerful as the tr- the last three liter from Gordini, although it was a two liter so we kind of made a leap improvement in the and then after that we won the european championship and all of that so in back to formula one in seventy five we built this two engine, and we, we knew that we could, on the power and torque, if we were to make the lag go away, we were going to be better than the other guys. We, we made the decision with Renault to race ourselves. So not only we were bringing a new technology on the engine side, but we had to build a team, which we moved to Viry-Châtillon. We took the best of everybody, some people coming from the Larousse Formula 2 team, and like Guénard. And we built out of the ground a, bu- a new Formula One teams, and we had to do the gearbox, the chassis, the body, and the engine. Top of that, beside having the new idea of turbocharging, we were the first one to use radial tires at the time. Michelin. Michelin. So, but I, I swear that we 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 didn't it didn't cross our mind that we were taking too much. We said, well, that's the. We were, we we're going to try it. I remember that race when you guys showed up at Silverstone, I First believe, race. British Grand Prix. Yeah. I mean, that was, Renault was to talk, you know, turbo blowing up. July. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. So that was the first one, and, and um, we, we, were, we learned the hard way that it was more complicated than we thought. Had one of us been a student of the British University uh, in engineering, we would have learned of all the work done during the war on the Merlin engine with compression, but we were all coming, all Frenchmen, and it took us some time to realize that other people have gone through the pain of fixing the heat exchange, the combustion, detonation, and all of that. Anyway, long story short, for two years we learned all the tracks, we learned to run the teams, we learned to use the Michelin tire. On occasion we were the fastest in, in practice especially when um, everything was aligned or um, altitude was involved. And, but during the, at the beginning of the second year, as we have decided not to do the second car, the RS-10 with the wing car, uh, we decided to go to two twin turbo instead of one. My management, Larousse, and I'm sure some people at Renault are asking whether we're ever going to make it work. And I have to stand very strong and say, yes, we're going to make it work. I think I see the end of the tunnel. We should not panic. And so all the things converge to Dijon, where um, that's, that's here. The, um, the engine was starting to be more reliable. The lag was reduced to a minimum with a twin turbo. The new car had better heat exchange for the cooling and the cooling of the air. And the new car was very, very well, 
was the, the, the suspension of the new car and the downforce and the Michelin were working very, very well. And so all the stars were aligned and suddenly in Dijon we win, which finally was a big relief for me and, and the people who believe in what we pushed them to, especially me because I was questioned all the time by my management. The video of that car coming to the checkered flag is, you know, historic and I see it again and again. You know, you see all these Renault guys jumping up oh, on yeah. the side. Are you in that uh, footage? I don't know. I don't remember Wait, where I was. I was there. I was at the track. I, I went to every Grand Prix, so I was there. must have been a great feeling to win a race. Yeah, and, and that was 79, uh, and the year before we won Le Mans. So for us, like kids, I was 34, 3 years old, 34 years old. It was a big deal and that, that we have done. Renault has never won Le Mans. And they insisted that we did, so we worked very hard to do it the year before, and we tried in 76, 77, 78. Which, and we beat Porsche, so for Renault, the family automobile company, you know, uh, it was a big deal. But at the time, I, seriously, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just like <laughs> big kids. <laughs> now, uh, talk us a little bit about the excitement of the fight for second place between Gilles Villeneuve and René Arnaud in that race. That is probably the most incredible Grand Prix battle ever seen. How do you remember that? Well, we, from where I, I was standing on the, on, the, on the pit wall, I didn't know what they were doing. I was obsessed. I was praying that Jabouille would not make a mistake in the last lap so that something would go wrong. So I was obsessed with that. So Jabouille passed, and then we heard through the grapevine that people were screaming and on, the, on the back of the track. And so we asked, what's wrong? It was all as an accident. Oh, no, no. He said they were, they, first they say Villeneuve and Arnoux were banging their wheels, which is not surprising because both of them were really the same type of all-out driver um, going all out. And Villeneuve maybe one small notch above for name. But both of them were extremely quick. And they would do any, they would always go fast even if the car was not perfect. They would find a way to make, to compensate for the lack of setting and, and so on, which Shabui was not able to do. And so they were like the same age, the same big balls people. And then they, they wanted it. And I never, I saw it on TV the next day, or I don't remember when I saw it. But at the time, I thought it was interesting that we were, you know, for me, the, the fact that we won the first Grand Prix and, started to realize that we were just about to have turned Formula 1 upside down. Oh, yeah. But it's interesting. A lot of people didn't realize that I think one of the reasons we were so competitive is because of the... We found out that wing cars, with the enormous amount of downforce they were giving in those days, where uh, having Michelin radials was a, was a plus, which people later, like uh, Gordon Murray, you know, explained to the world and so on. And, uh, but we, we knew that, so we... We had the 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 insight and in, in into it and so on. We couldn't really compare because we were never permitted to try Goodyear versus Michelin. But um, it was uh, the package were there. Now Michel Tetu was one of your main designers, right? Yeah, he was the the head of uh, the body chassis group, and um, the designer was a young guy called G, uh, Villepin, who ended up working for other guys in, after that. And um, was the, the group was not that big. Bernard Dudo and Bernard and Jean-Pierre Boudy, each of them had their own career after that. And me were kind of the engine side. And, but I was spending less and less time on the engine and one more time in making sure that all the chassis, we had to build our own gearbox out of Unum cases. And, and it was a big, you know, you know when Formula One is. It was not as complicated as today. I think we have a few minutes left on our recorder, so some quick questions. Your favorite track in Europe? 
I think Spa is probably the the, the 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 track where everybody, if you win there and if you do well with the car, beyond having a good driver to do it, Spa is probably the most terrifying track. Though. And among the Grand Prix drivers that you followed in your career, both as a spectator, as a fan, and when you were working in Formula One, who stands out for you? Well, when I left Formula One in uh, motorsport in 19, uh, at the end of 79, I didn't you know, drivers, you know them when you're close to them, if you are far away. So I have great admiration for Schumacher, for example, for what we've done. Frankly, in my days, the guy that impressed me a lot was Jody Schechter. And he was very smart. He didn't want to stay in that business for too long until he was concerned about killing himself. But he was better than Villeneuve. He was, um, and he was one of these all-out guys that could... He made his name as his first Grand Prix by knocking out... Yeah, uh, I don't know how many cars out of the Silverstone. Or something. 30 steam and like eight, nine cars. Yeah. <laughs> but he was like that. But he, 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 we were friends, uh, Judy and I, we, when he was at Ferrari. Because Renault and Ferrari were the non-British team, so yeah. we were always parked on the side <laughs> together. And all the British team were on the other side. And we had good chefs to cook our meal, meal and the British didn't, so they were looking at us with envy. Ah. And so Foggy was there, and we were, I was on the, next to him. So on Sunday night at Monza, we will have their chef and our chef work together, and we have a team, a dinner for all the, everybody, the Italian and the French. So it was really funny. No British teams allowed? No. Well, no, we, we were not in bad terms, I know. I, but they were, they were, this is, Formula One was their thief, you know, and uh, at the time, it was like their business, making their money. That's why they were anti. Ferrari was like an exotic thing, you know, coming. But the turbocharging was a big disruption to the Cosworth business. Absolutely. And Duckworth was really outspoken to try to stop from turbocharging. And I knew him because you know, I met him before. And best, um, one of my best souvenirs, I have great respect for Keith. Poor Keith, who's passed away now. And um, he was a, a fantastic engine engineer. And... Um, so the, the, after Dijon, there was another Grand Prix in Austria, I think, and then finally we were in Monza. And so Monza, whatever, this, you know, like Saturday night, we were preparing the car for the race. And someone called me, and, uh, uh, someone, a friend said, you know, Keith really would like to talk and see the cars. I said, well, of course he can come. So here I am, and Keith come along for him to come and, and look at the cars. I have a picture of that. And so I, I gave him a beer, and together we spent like half, half an hour. I opened everything for him to see what we had done, which was not rocket science yet. So, and so I, it was so funny and so interesting that uh, he, he realized that um, that was it. We, we were going to, he was going to have to turbocharge something. Exactly. Oh, yeah, turbo just took over, and I remember, you know, when Ferrari became pretty strong, and then... I remember the days when Alain Prost and uh, René Arnoux were just like, you know, very strong. Now, do you know Arnoux and Gerard Ducarouge and people yeah. like that? Yeah. Are you still in touch with them? When I see René, I see I, um, we, we still, we've, I don't think we have the same touch, but we've, when I visit, I'm still close to Oreca with Hugues de Chonac and so on. And because, in part because um, when we uh, started the Viper GTSR program, we contracted that with Orica. And so we have spent quite a bit of time together again. And, uh, and he stayed very close to many of the drivers because they all started with him. Paul started with him. Anu started with him and so on. So it, uh, he has a collection of former 
stars that, or, or actual stars that, that started with this, or on occasion they bump with them and to them. So, Thank you very much for talking to F1 Weekly, Francois. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Back to you, Nasser. Thank you, sir. Uh, we shall move forward with this month in racing, a look at some events, sad, bad, whatever, that happened in the month of October. 19 October 1958, the one and so far only Moroccan Championship Grand Prix was the season finale at the Ain Diab Street Circuit near Casablanca. The race was going to witness the first English world champion. Duel in the desert was between Ferrari driver Mike Hawthorne and Van Wall's Sterling Moss. Hawthorne took pole position, Moss the victory. But Hawthorne won the championship by a single point thanks to the, his teammate Phil Hill allowing him to pass for second place in the race and first in the championship. Another English driver, Stuart Lewis Evans, suffered serious burns which proved to be fatal a few days later. And Mr. Rogers, this is going back in 1958 and this gentleman's racing manager was a certain Bernard Ecclestone. Absolutely mind-blowing. October 6, 1973, Watkins Glen, New York. Jackie Stewart's Terrell teammate Francois Sever killed in a vicious accident during qualifying. Two years earlier, Sever had taken his only Grand Prix victory at the same track. Sever was second in the 1972 Le Mans driving for Matra. His co-driver then was Harden Genley of New Zealand. And once upon a time in the West, Dr. Farrington and I had a nice lunch with Mr. Ganley at the Black Hawk Museum in Danville, California. Unfortunately and very sadly, same date, same track, exactly one year later, Austrian driver Helmut Koenig is killed in the U.S. Grand Prix in what was only his second Formula One start. October 26th, um, I think you were watching live, I sure was and will never forget this. October 26, 1986. Not a good year on a good year. Season finale, Adelaide, Australia. Nigel Mansell was on his way to winning the World Championship with Williams. Then late in the race, he had a massive done blowed up and Professor Alain Prost taught him a lesson. You don't have to win every race to become world champion. Many years later, according to Mr. Mansell himself, the chief steward from the Australian Grand Prix of 1986 told Mansell, had he stopped the car on the track and not taken the escape road, they would have stopped and called off the race and he would have been world champion in 1986. Next, sir, among the current F1 drivers, these are the drivers born in October. Kevin Magnussen, October 5, 1992. Charles Leclerc, October 16, 1997. And finally, on October 29, 1998, the legend of Edmund Fitzgerald and Lake Gichigumi, Lance Stroll, made his humble appearance in this world. You know, speaking of Lance Stroll, there are so many stories going around him, and one of them was that his mom, who is from Belgium, she really wants him to uh, get out of racing because of, you know, risk and dangers and war. So let's see how this thing works out. Okay, sir, now we come to famous last words. Today we have a selection from Grand Prix and Championship winning drivers. And I got this information from a website called theroadtripexpert.com. So credit where it should be due. And Mr. Rogers, since you are big on testicular fortitude, 
we shall start with DC who said, and I quote, Racing drivers have balls. Unfortunately, none of them are crystal. End quote. Next, Nicky Lauder, the man who never hopped on the PC train. He said, and I quote, If you are a straightforward racing driver, you should always see your limits. You have to be objective and not come, come up with any bullshit. End quote. This is the same Nicky who told Ferrari team manager after his first test session at Fiorano to tell Enzo his car is a piece of caca. Next, we have a driver who fell in love with Ferrari but fell out of favor with their management, Sebastian Vettel. He said, and I quote, and this is very true, simply racing a Formula 1 car is an achievement, end quote. Next, man with yellow helmet and torch bearer of intensity. He said, and I quote, if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you are no longer a racing driver, end quote. The sequel to this famous saying is one of my all-time favorite, and it goes like this. If you no longer go for the gap that does not exist, you are no longer Pastor Maldonado. Ain't that the truth, Mr. Rogers? That's a beautiful quote. And I've seen t-shirts with this saying also. Next, we come to Maestro Juan Manuel Fangio has this sound advice. He said, and I quote, you must always strive to be the best, but you must never believe that you are, end quote. And from Mikhail Schumacher, he said, and I quote, Just being a mediocre driver has never been my ambition. That's not my style, end quote. Final words come from Enzo, and he is so damn right about the business of motor racing. He said, and I quote, What's behind you doesn't matter, end quote. And sir, moving forward to the next race, which is the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin, Tejas, let me ask you the favorite question. Who is going to win the race after Alonso takes the checkered flag? Well, after Fernando finally gets that win, it's going to be a Max and Norris festival. Piastri will have some issues and Norris will puff out his chest and feel a lot better about his testicular fortitude other than that it's not going to be a great exciting race but what can you do huh well you know um i think there are five races remaining max has 14 wins so the question is is he going to end the season with 19 grand prix wins probably but the other question is where is perez what's going on with the per i mean there's so many rumors he's supposed to retire on the mexican weekend I mean, he's supposed to be there for 2024. The Mexican thing, ever since they had a problem with Dr. Marco and his comments, everything has gone downhill. So I'm not sure they're talking about firing Marco. What is going on at Red Bull Nasser? These are the latest report that apparently there is a meeting with the board of directors of Red Bull. You know, they have a new sheriff in town a gentleman by the name of Oliver Minchlaff, a German guy, and he has succeeded Dietrich Mateschitz. So Dr. Marco does not have uh, somebody at the top who will love him come hell or high water. And he, Mar Dr. Marco is um, up there in age also, 80 years old. And wherever there is a regime change, they do bring in their own people. And the comment he made about Checo did not help him. 
not the smartest thing he ever did in his life. But I think it's a combination of all these things. There are even reports there is some power struggle between Christian Horner and Dr. Marco. And Dr. Marco, you know, he's not an employee of Red Bull Racing. He's a what they call a consultant or advisor to Red Bull uh, parent company. But um, I will not be surprised if he announces his retirement. You know, the other guy is also going. Uh, what's his name? The guy at uh, Alpha Tori. I, I interviewed him a few years ago. You know who I'm talking Mr. Tost. Franz Tost, right? Yeah, Franz Tost. Yeah, he's going. So it, it won't surprise me. And you know, change will happen sooner or later. So that's the way it goes. But, uh, you know, I thought about going to the um, U.S. Grand Prix when I've gone to most of them. But I, I just cannot handle standing four or five hours at one place, especially after the end of the race. So who knows if we will ever see days where we can go and get uh, Formula 1 credentials. But uh, I will go to a few races where in and out is not an issue. I mean, no matter where you go, you're going to end up walking at least for an hour, as it happened at the uh, Austrian Grand Prix. But uh, one hour is much better on my old legs in four hours. So uh, we'll see. But next up for me, Formula One, if all goes well, will be the Australian Grand Prix in Albert Park. So I'm really looking forward to it. And, you know, we tried to get Formula Two credentials. We were shot down for Austria. You know, we're very tenacious people. So we're going to try again uh, Formula Two credentials for the Austrian, Australian Grand Prix. And if that goes turned down, then we'll go to a third backup, which would be the supercars will be racing there also. But anyway, I'm going to be uh, in the Fangio Grandstand with our mate JP, and we're going to meet our other family members in Australia also. So I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, sir, finally, we are coming to Musical Montreal. Today, we have a symphony of success from 1985 performance in Portugal. Obrigado, and thank you for listening. Please enjoy. Thank you, Nasser. Good night. Bye-bye. Out goes the checkered flag, and Senna has won the jubilant Team Lotus Mechanics, and off goes Mantle. And you can see that this usually totally unflappable, imperturbable Brazilian is, for once, absolutely beside himself with, look at him, both hands waving with joy. I could not see anything in front of me. With the cars going in front, it was impossible to see anything. And you have, and you had to go by because it was a big difference in the pace that I was going. I don't think I've seen a Grand Prix driver quite so jubilant as you when the checkered flag finally came out. What does this mean to you to win your first Grand Prix? It means that all the effort and the years that I have put behind motor racing since four years old, are giving me something good back and not just for me but especially for Team Lotus and JPS and uh, to all the Brazilians that cheer me up a lot. The Portuguese Grand Prix will always be remembered for Ayrton Senna and a magnificent victory.